Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the biggest issue facing America, and that is the very future of democracy itself in this country. Joining us is David Pepper, who served as chairman of the Democratic Party in Ohio from 2015 to 2021, and is the author of the new book just out, Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. He has an article at The Guardian, Republicans are quietly rigging election maps to ensure permanent rule, and we'll discuss how the free and fair vote is being systematically undermined at the federal, state, and local levels and in the courts. We'll assess what can be done to stop the Republican onslaught of gerrymandering, voter suppression, having state legislatures count, certify and change the vote to their liking, as well as stacking local election boards with Trump stop the steel partisans to intimidate voters and rig the count at the ballot box level. Then we'll get an update on the new COVID Omicron variant spreading around the world, which is alarming the World Health Organization. But in contrast, the South African doctor who first discovered it claims its symptoms are, quote, extremely mild. Joining us to weigh the mixed messages as President Biden cautions Americans that there is, quote, a cause for concern, not a cause for a panic, is Dr. Stanley Perlman, a professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Iowa, who has studied coronavirus pathogenesis for four decades. Then finally, we'll speak with Annie Bird, a human rights advocate assisting communities in Honduras and Guatemala, where she advances justice processes for human rights violations in multiple forms, including the inter-American human rights system, U.S. courts in Guatemala and Honduran courts. She joins us to discuss whether the overwhelming victory of Xiomara Castro in the Honduran presidential election against the narco dictator Juan Orlando Hernandez will be challenged by the country's corrupt elite. And before we go to our first guest, tomorrow is Giving Tuesday, and since I recently resigned in protest from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station, background briefing is now completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is David Pepper, who served as chairman of the Democratic Party of Ohio from 2015 to 2021 and is the author of the new book just out, Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. And he has an article at The Guardian, Republicans are quietly rigging election maps to ensure permanent rule. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Pepper. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And frankly, it's refreshing to talk to somebody who got their hair on fire about the biggest issue facing the United States, and that is whether or not we'll have a democracy in a couple of years' time or whether we'll have the equivalent of Viktor Orban's electoral autocracy in Hungary. And, of course... 
he was visited recently by Tucker Carlson, and the Republican Party seemed to be perfectly comfortable with instituting voter suppression across the board, along with gerrymandering, and uh, the ability, if they don't like the results, which they can certify and count, then they'll put their people in. And they're also very busy at the precinct level, changing the formerly neutral poll workers into partisan Republicans, like the cyber ninjas that did that bogus recount in Arizona. So why isn't the Democratic Party at large, all of the representatives on Capitol Hill, and Americans in general, up in arms about this? I mean, there's a longer-term reason, and then the short-term, I think, is frankly more of a mystery to me. But the, the longer term is that, that the, the forces who, who really want to undermine democracy have figured out that at the state house level, no one's paying attention. You know, people don't know who their state rep is. They generally don't understand the powers in state houses. So we spend half our time or more, you know, worrying about Trump's every utterance or, or you know, what Lauren Boebert or, or Marjorie Taylor Greene is saying, when the truth is there are hundreds of people just like them who are in the majority in state houses passing laws every day undermining democracy. And the reason they're using state houses is because people don't realize it. And so I wrote this book sort of desperately trying to raise attention. Like you said, our hair should be on fire. The institutional damage being done right now at the state level uh, is enormous. And, and as, you know, as anyone who studies our Constitution knows, these states have a huge amount of power over our national democratic process. So if, if, if it's in the wrong hands, and in many states it is, they can really do huge damage to our federal process of electing everyone from president to Congress to every level. Um, in the shorter term, though, I, I will say I continue to be bewildered by the by the sort of the, the the lack of urgency in the Senate right now. Now, obviously, I think most people support this there, the Democrats at least. But but we need to get moving like yesterday on battling back against these attacks on democracy, the states. And when I say attacks on democracy, I'm talking voting rights, gerrymandering, attacks on independent officials like courts. You know, it's it as you say, if we saw the combination of things happening at these state houses in another country, we'd actually understand it was attack on democracy. But because it's happening in, in our own country, we don't see it as that. And that, that's a huge blind spot that we need to solve immediately. Well, you know, the press is on it. I mean, the, the Washington Post has a story today. Trump allies work to place supporters in key election posts across this country, spurring fears about future vote challenges. And it goes on to talk about what's happening in Michigan, where they're right. appointing people to the election canvas boards. And remember, it was a decent Republican in Michigan who was on the state electoral board to certify mm -hmm. the vote. They were called by Trump personally, just as he called Brad Raffensperger in right. uh, Georgia, and they leaned on them. But this one Republican voted with the majority just by one vote. Otherwise, uh, Michigan would have gone to Trump, or at least it would have been up for grabs. So they've already fixed that now. They put Trump's people in there in Michigan. And in Pennsylvania, they put people on the election boards, voting judges and inspectors who are stop to steal believers. And in Colorado, the stop to steal believers are urging followers on, on uh, social media platforms to apply for jobs 
in election offices. So right. this is what's happening. Again, I think this is the biggest story out there. And just going back to Capitol Hill, David, haven't they lost the opportunity to do the John Lewis Voting Rights Act? Isn't, isn't that- they haven't lost it. I wish it had been the first thing they'd done out of the gate. You know, normally you can, as you look at the last you know number of democratic cycles, you can hit very hard early. I wish they had done it. I don't think it's too late, but I think they need to get it done. Uh, you know, they, when, when there's an urgency, like, you know, approving the increasing the debt limit, they seem to show an urgency to all their members. And right now they have to do that here. And, and I worry that we are sort of the, the frog in the proverbial pot. And maybe some of them don't see it yet. But I agree, you know, I agree with you on the urgency. It's the biggest story going. The way I think about it is, you know, Every every election night, America sits down and we have four hours of coverage and fancy music of all our elections. Right. But you wouldn't know right now that most of those elections are being rigged at the moment. And some newspapers are covering it. Some cable news is covering it. But is it on the nightly news the same way that the election results are in November? No. And, and we go back to Orban. The way that competitive autocracy is so dangerous is the elections are predetermined, but there's a veneer of legitimacy to it. And if we're not careful, we're going to fall into that. And, and Ohio's lived this for the last decade. Ninety nine percent of our state house results were predetermined in a hotel room in 2010. That happened all across the country. They're doubling down as we speak. But as you said, you know, now they have three years to figure out how to do what they were unable to do for Trump after he lost the election. They they tried this too late, and now, as the Post covered and others, they're working very methodically to get themselves in a position to, to take care of this long before you know the, the, the votes are actually counted. So this is all happening right as we speak, and, and it is late. It's late in the game, but I still think they can ram it through and hopefully give some protection against what's being what's being worked on by the folks who are against democracy. And again, I'm speaking with David Pepper, who served as chairman of the Democratic Party of Ohio from 2015 to 2021, and is the author of the new book just out, Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. And he has an article at The Guardian, Republicans are quietly rigging election maps to ensure permanent rule. So let's talk about what they're doing in Ohio, because already... They're doing the same in um, Florida, which we're going to be talking about on Wednesday. And they're also, of course, in Texas as well. So across the country, they're busily rigging the votes in terms of gerrymandering. And the old expression about what's wrong with gerrymandering is quite simply that voters are supposed to choose their politicians, not politicians choosing their voters. Correct. And here's the here's what's happening that I think people most have not quite seen. The current people in office in most of these state houses themselves have been living in rigged districts their entire career. Very few of them have ever actually in their own rise to power gone through any robust, if existent at all, democratic process. So we're talking about a group of people who themselves are disconnected from democracy in their own rise, and they realize that in any world of robust democracy and real elections, they're so extreme, their public outcomes are so bad 
they, in many ways, in many places like Ohio, there's such high corruption, they would all lose. But they also happen to have their hands on the levers that define the rules of our democracy. So right now, I think we're seeing sort of a, an acceleration of this way beyond what people realize. And it's because the people themselves in these positions have themselves not been part of a, a really a, anything that would mean a definition of democracy. So as Trump and others figured out, these are people who have enough power to really change the way we, we elect Congress. Um, they can meddle with the, the choosing of electors for the presidential election. One other thing they're doing right now beyond the, the high profile stuff is a lot of states, state Supreme Courts actually helped assure fair elections last year. Well, guess what? They're meddling with how we elect those Supreme Court justices. In Ohio, they totally changed the rules only a few months ago because a independent court stands as the last sort of protector against what they're doing. So they're doing it in, in ways that are in the headlines and they're doing it in ways that are not even covered because there's so much happening at once and, and is accelerating again very quickly. So will the Republicans win back the House before one vote is cast? I, I don't think they'll they they win it outright, but I think they get a lot closer. And the worry is, and I ran for office in a midterm when we had the White House. The worry is that other you know, the broader political environment gets them the rest of the way. My attitude is, you know, we had massive turnout to elect Obama. We had very good turnout. You know, the highest win ever in terms of votes by Biden. People need to, and this is why I wrote the book. People need to realize that for, for whatever reasons they were excited about Obama in 08 and excited about getting rid of Trump in 20, those reasons and those stakes are just as big in 22. And so if you showed up in those years because you loved Obama, you loved Biden, you were scared of Trump, be scared of the consequences of 22 if they win up and down Congress, State House, Senate. Those will be as dramatic and in a negative way is is the excitement about uh, electing Barack Obama. So my hope is that if people are sufficiently motivated, they can show up. And although it's I would say we're the underdog to not let this happen, but I think there'll still be enough seats we can win to stop the worst case scenario, both on the Senate side and the House side. And again, part of the thesis of my book is and then make sure you vote all the way through your ballot. These state houses, these state Supreme Court races, all of them have a profound impact on our democracy, but too often only the one side has appreciated that and the other side hasn't been paying as much attention. So vote in huge numbers and vote all the way through that ballot. Well, you mentioned the 2010 midterms, which were engineered largely by Karl Rove, a lot of money from the American Petroleum Institute and the ALEC, the Koch brothers-backed American Legislative Exchange Council, they really were very effective. And now that was also, a, of course, a, a census year, and we've just had another census, which has ended up with the Democrats losing a couple of seats, one here in, uh, in Los Angeles, as a matter of fact. So are the Democratic Party, as far as you're concerned, uh, David Pepper, you know, on the ball here in terms of understanding how, you know, hardball the Republicans are? I mean, they're not, I, they don't have a problem with no. rigging the vote. They would rather cheat than compete. That is a fact. 
and it's uh, embarrassing, it's depressing. I don't understand why they can call themselves Americans and believe in democracy and do all of the stuff that we all celebrate, the most enduring democracy in the world, etc., cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I just... I don't think we are on offense like they're on offense. And, and this is not just the Republican Party. It's the uh, uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is behind the scenes pulling the strings on all these state houses. It's the Koch brothers. They are on offense against democracy in all 50 states every single year because they realize a robust democracy would mean that sort of the trickle down, quote unquote, economic liberty view of democracy that they have wouldn't actually survive if everyone votes in fair elections. So they're on offense against democracy every year at all levels. And Democrats, too often, we're only fighting in certain states in certain years. That's a losing proposition. So I'm doing everything I can to convince people we have to see this as a broader battle for democracy itself. Once you define it that way, then you realize you have to wage that in all 50 states. And you have to wage it every single year, not just in the presidential year, which is normally when Democrats get energized. So I just think that they are they are playing a different battle with a much more aggressive posture than we are. And and we, we are way behind. They are decades ahead on this. So we don't have a lot of time to come to, to, to make up that difference. Now, I think some of the Democratic leadership gets this. I know Jamie Harrison well, the new head of the DNC. He gets this. But but I think this has to start at the Senate and the White House that we cannot allow this window to close in the next two years without really robust protection of democracy. And one other thing, you know, the history in our country is very clear. If there are a Jim Crow era coming about is a is a great sad case study. If one side is relentlessly attacking democracy at the state level where there's so much power and the other side is not fighting back as fiercely, and and especially if the federal government is not standing in to stop those attacks, those attacks against democracy succeed. And so it has to be that the federal government has to step up. And then at all levels, we have to redefine right now our politics so that basically it's about saving democracy and, and energizing people uh, to, to be involved every single year, or we may lose it, like you're saying. But surely the American people still understand fairness. So think about it in the terms of an NFL game. Say, say the Super Bowl. You've got hundreds of thousands of people in the stands, millions watching, and the referee when calls the most outrageous call that is so blatantly wrong and the victory goes to the wrong team. The, right. the stadium would be up in arms and Americans would be furious across the board. They don't like cheaters. So can you name and shame the Republicans? Is there any way for that, that sense of fairness to become a political weapon? You know, it's funny you say that. Is, is you're right. We actually had two different constitutional amendments on the ballot in Ohio to change the way the maps are drawn here to end gerrymandering, both passed with 75, around 75% of the vote. So when, and this has happened in other states like Missouri and others, when voters actually get to choose, do we want a fair system or a rigged system? We've, we generally vote for fairness in overwhelming numbers. The problem is these, these officials are in a, jobs that currently they cannot lose 
So even in the face of these overwhelming votes in Missouri and Ohio and other states, they still simply ignore it. And so it's got to be both voting and, and getting on the ballot, anything you can get on the ballot where it's an up or down vote on fairness or democracy. You, if you run a good campaign, you're going to have a chance of winning. But it's also got to be other ways to really you know, curtail some of the worst practices. And that's why I think federal legislation, strong enforcement of that legislation from Merrick Garland, real accountability when people cross the line. If you don't throw all that in the mix, even, I mean, we're seeing it in Ohio, in other states. Even when the voters say it's what they want, these people are, feel so unaccountable in their gerrymandered districts. They're, thumb their, they're thumbing their nose at literally the constitutions of the states that take, they took an oath to uphold but don't seem to, to, to understand they have to actually uphold that. So I wish it was just up to the people. It's got to be a combination of things, uh, both elections and otherwise. Well, David Pepper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me, and hopefully we can keep talking about this. This is so critical. I appreciate that you're, we're on the same page. Well, thank you, David. And again, I've been speaking with David Pepper, who served as the chairman of the Democratic Party in Ohio from 2015 to 2021, and is the author of the new book just out, Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. And he has an article at The Guardian, Republicans are quietly rigging election maps to ensure permanent rule. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an update on the new Omicron variant spreading around the world, which has alarmed the World Health Organization. But in contrast, a South African doctor who first discovered it claims its symptoms are extremely mild. Well, I met you on election night As we cried over our beer Nothing you could do would cheer me up We broke up later that year Well, how come you and I aren't winners? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Stanley Perlman, a professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Iowa, who has studied coronavirus pathogenesis for four decades. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Stanley Perlman. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And I'm not sure that the alarm over the new strain of COVID, uh, Omicron, is actually receding. Somewhat mixed messages. The World Health Organization saying today, Monday, that the global risk is very high. And it says, given mutations that may confer immune escape potential and possible transmissibility advantage, the likelihood of potential further spread of Omicron at a global level is high. But then on the other hand, Stanley, we're hearing that the South African doctor who first isolated or discovered this new strain, he said that the symptoms, he described them as extremely mild. So the markets are back up. They took a dip, obviously, over the uh, starting on Friday. And the president today made some fairly reassuring comments, which we can talk about. So what do you think's going on with this thing? Is it, is it as bad as was first thought? Well, I think that you gave a great introduction to some of the issues. So the first thing is that we think that this virus is more transmissible than other 
uh, SARS-CoV-2 variants, but we don't know by how much. We don't know for sure. The second thing is looking at its sequence. It has mutations that could make it resistant to immunity induced by vaccines or previous infection, but we don't know how much. This may be similar to what the beta variant had, but we really don't know. Tests have not been run. We don't have information. The third thing is that the, so far the virus has a infected mostly people who are younger and are going to do better with the infection than people who are older or more vulnerable. So we don't know whether this will truly cause mild disease, uh, more mild disease, or equivalent disease if the right populations are infected. So that that's really where we stand. One could imagine that it's more transmissible. There's hints of that, but it's not 100% certain. Uh, one could imagine that it has some immune evasion, but we don't know how much and we don't know how important. So far, none of these variants have completely avoided the immune response or even close to completely, even in places where there was an uptick in cases after vaccination, such as Israel, people who are vaccinated did quite well, and a few people got sick, but much, much less than the unvaccinated population. So President Biden said today that there's a cause for concern, not a cause for panic. And he went on to say the best protection against this new variant or any of the various out there, the ones that we're dealing with already, is getting fully vaccinated and getting a booster shot. Sooner or later, we're going to see cases of this new variant here in the United States. We have to face this new threat just as we face those that have come before it. And then he went on to praise the South Africans, uh, who, by the way, are apparently feeling pretty uh, <laughs> upset that they're being sort of punished as opposed to praised for isolating this uh, variant and making it uh, public. So do you think that President Biden's acting on, on good advice here? I mean, presumably he gets pretty good advice. Uh, he seems. Yeah, I think what he's... Yeah, I think what he's saying is accurate because, as I was saying, we we don't know that much about it. We uh, the, all the information so far is that vaccination or prior infection will give you some degree, if not excellent immunity, very good immunity. So all that's true. If one has not been vaccinated, not been previously infected, then this is another variant, and just like any of the other SARS-CoV-2. Uh, unless we find out it's actually milder than the others, it's going to cause severe disease in some proportion of the population. And the best way to prevent that is vaccination. Boosting is only needed when somebody receives the vaccine several months ago, over six months ago or longer. But uh, other than that, I think that as far as we know right now that he was accurate. The other thing I should also say is that the South Africans have a, have a very good system for detection of the virus. So, of course, one of the issues is if you can't detect the virus, because you don't have the system set up, then you're not going to detect the virus, and therefore you can't be associated with the identification, the origin of the virus. So we don't know where this virus started, and the South Africans uh, should be praised for having enough of a testing setting set up in place so that they can detect variants. This is what we have in the U.K. and in Israel and other places, the U.S. to some extent, but not as great. And already, uh, Dr. Stanley Perlman, there are two cases in Ontario, Canada. So when do you expect to hear about cases here in the United States? Oh, there probably are cases here. It's just whether we do enough testing to find them. And, and you suggested that we're not up to the standard of Israel and uh, South Africa. So far, we haven't been. I don't know. I, I haven't kept track of exactly where we are. But for the longest time, we weren't up, quite up to those standards. And we're doing better. 
but I don't think we're uh, fully there yet. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Stanley Perlman, a professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Iowa, who has studied coronavirus pathogenesis for four decades. So, Stanley, when will this agony end? Obviously, it's having terrible political consequences for President Biden. I think the subtext of the elections in Virginia indicate that there's a great deal of anxiety, particularly amongst parents, about their children and getting them vaccinated and getting them masks and different school districts and different states with different rules and, you know, Florida and Texas with governors that are running for president, grandstanding and against vaccination and masks. The whole kind of mosaic across the country is one of confusion. That's correct. Uh, There's political disagreement on on a healthcare issue and it has been from the beginning, and it makes things tough. And when it'll end, well, we, I don't know a good answer for that because this virus doesn't seem to be going away. The in 1918 flu went away, and we don't really know why it completely disappeared, but it did. This one doesn't seem to be, and, and this one is circulating enough, particularly in places in the world, such as African parts of Asia, where there's not enough vaccination, or even Europe, there's places where there's not enough vaccination. It gives the virus a chance to grow in people, and perhaps in people who don't have good immune systems, and perhaps allowing for variants to arise that uh, can can be more transmissible. So the so there's a few rules. This is an, a virus that has RNA in the middle, so it means for its genomic information. So it means that it can mutate a little more. And we know that if you require an immune system to get rid of the virus, if somebody's immunocompromised, uh, they may have a longer time for the virus to grow. The third thing is all the virus wants to do is transmit better. The virus is not interested in killing people. So if there's a big uh, group of people who have either no immunity, uh, the virus will not will only mutate to transmit better. If it ends up uh, infecting people with small amounts of immunity, but some immunity, it might well mutate in those people to evade that immunity and then possibly transmit those resistant strains. So for this virus right now, it's, it's the best way to keep immunity up and to keep the virus down is to make sure that people are vaccinated and have good levels of immune responses, antibodies and T-cells. There may be a time if the virus becomes milder than when we will all be happy to be boosted by a natural infection if there's no consequences except it boosts us. That, that's one scenario that would be favorable and it would mean the virus turns into more like a cold virus. So that's something that we dream about right now, but we hope will occur and would make this uh, we get to the situation that you're referring to where we actually have to worry much less about the pandemic per se. Well, so far, over 5 million people have died around the planet and, what, 760,000 and counting here in the United States? That's pretty much on a par with the great influenza, isn't it? Well, I think the numbers may be, but the fraction is much lower because mm-hmm. there were so, few, so many fewer people in the world than in right. 1918. So by the end of the day, it could be up there with the great influenza, right? Yeah, I think, it, I think the only difference is the, it's a pandemic at a time where we have more technical advances. So we, we know more about the viruses. We know uh, more about how to develop antivirals that work against the viruses. We know more about vaccines. Otherwise, it has a lot of the sim- same similarities or similarities to what happened in 1918. 
Well, it is, again, frustrating that so many people... I mean, you can't blame the fact that 76% of people in Africa are immunised because, you know, there is this rich-poor north-south divide. Uh, and here we are in the United States getting booster shots when they haven't even in the third world, they haven't even got their first ones. So you can't blame people in the, the less developed world for the problem, but you can surely blame people in this country and, and in Europe who have access to immunization but don't choose to take it. And there again, we're up against a brick wall. Is there any possibility, Stanley, that this new strain will get to people and realize that, you know, this thing's not going to go away? And, you, you know, it's about time you bite the bullet and forget about all of this stuff about freedom and liberty and individual choice. It's, you know, it's a very selfish choice. It's not an individual choice. It's a selfish choice to refuse to be vaccinated and therefore expose vulnerable people and children. Yes, I think that that's true. I think that the people, some people who were opposed with mandates have now gotten vaccinated maybe unhappily, but they've gotten vaccinated, and that there's other people who who are on the line who may see that this is the time to do it. I think the thing that's been amazing to me is that even with uh, people who are really sick and either dying from COVID-19 or in an ICU and recover, there's still plenty of people who even under, even though they either have a, a family member like that or they themselves were sick, they're still refusing to get vaccinated, refusing to acknowledge that this is a real disease. So these are difficult things to um, to change opinions about because there's such polarization in this country and in other countries, not just the U.S. There's all, all over the world there's protests about mandates. So I imagine you're, you've done your best to persuade people. There's no magic word here, is there? I don't think so. I think that the best way to do that, the, the only ways I know that work, and I don't even know if they do work, is to talk to people as um, much as you can on a one-to-one basis and also to um, have people in the community who are highly respected by these groups encourage vaccination. But even that's not working very well. It's, but that's, those are at least positive things that one can do. There's so much, as I said, there's so much polarization here that it's very really hard to get past that and have a consensus on what to do that everyone agrees on. So back to the Omicron, the new strain of COVID. Initially, there I don't know whether this is still relevant data, but initially there was like 50 mutations, uh, 30 of which are in the T cell, which is the means by which the um, virus gets into human cells. Um, that sparked a lot of alarm. And I mentioned in, in the beginning that the South African doctor who first discovered this strain uh, said that the symptoms are pretty mild. So when do you think we'll get some clarity on whether or not this is as alarming as was first thought? And again, today, the WHO, World Health Organization, said it is alarming. So again, I'm trying to f- figure out where we stand yeah. between the South African doctor saying it's mild to the WHO saying it's alarming. Yeah, so but I think that I think that everybody is correct in a way because it if if it is more transmissible and that's one of the key things and we think it is but we don't know for sure. If it is more transmissible then that's more alarming just because it raises the number of people who might get infected. If it is a milder disease then that'll decrease the alarm. So far most of the information 
is about young people who have been infected, because that's the groups that tended to be least vaccinated in South Africa and elsewhere. So that's why there's a lot of speculation now, but we will know in the next few days about how much it's spreading in the places that do much, uh, that do a lot of tracking of the virus. We'll have a sense for how sick people are by the same token in these countries, this will be followed. But this all takes a little bit of time because the incubation period of the virus, the time to enter uh, ICUs and to be sick, uh, we'll know a lot of information very quickly about whether the virus is truly more evasive of the antibody response that we use to fight the virus. That we'll know quickly because we can do that with samples in hand already as soon as people can get access to the virus and study it. So all those things will be some of these things will be known quickly. Some will take a little longer. I think that people are being cautious because, or some of these organizations are being cautious because they want people to realize, yes, there is a potential problem here. And then uh, we don't know how great a, a problem this is. Because, you know, the other thing we have on top of this is in the United States, we have Thanksgiving and we have the winter holidays coming up. These are when people get together, they go indoors. So all these things tend to increase infection rates, which is what we saw last year at this time. So there's a whole bunch of factors here that are going to uh, could could contribute to more cases, and we just have to figure out what role the Omicron variant has in it. So just in the last couple of minutes, then Stanley Perlman. Moderna CEO Stephane Bancel said today that it could take months to develop and ship an Omicron-specific vaccine, but that higher doses of the booster that it has now, of course, could be ready much sooner. Does that make sense? I'd heard that I think of BioNTech, who developed the Pfizer vaccine with Pfizer, they said they could have a new vaccine for Omicron in 100 days. What do you think? Yeah, somewhere. I mean, 100 days is three months. And so whether it's three months or six months, by then at least we'll know whether we need it at all. Because so far, every variant that people have worried about uh, has not needed a new vaccine, but rather just being boosted was uh, effective enough. So where we stand, I think it's really an open question. And that's why some of these studies that we'll know very quickly about whether this virus evades the immune response are really key. Because if it's no more or less than the previous ones, then we can go one way. If it's radically different, uh, then we might have to develop a new vaccine. My gut feeling is it's not going to be radically different, but uh, we'll see. We have to see, and when we get the data, we'll have to see how it falls out. But just in closing, you don't see this one sort of going away like the 1918 influenza virus that killed so many people just sort of magically disappeared. Yeah, so far there's no evidence for that. The coronaviruses are so different from flu that 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 may contribute to why there's differences like this. But I think it's more likely that coronavirus will end up as a an endemic coronavirus is like the coronavirus, like the ones that cause the common cold now in the United States and elsewhere in the world. Well, Stanley Perlman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Oh, my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Stanley Perlman, who's a professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Iowa, who has studied coronavirus pathogenesis for four decades. We're going to take a brief station break back discussing the overwhelming victory of Xiomara Castro in the Honduran presidential elections against the narco dictator Juan Orlando Hernandez and whether it will be challenged by the country's corrupt elite. Oh, 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 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Annie Bird, who's a human rights advocate assisting communities in Honduras and Guatemala advance justice processes for human rights violations in multiple forms, including the Inter-American Human Rights System, U.S. courts, and Guatemalan and Honduran courts. She's the co-founder of Rights Action and ran its office in Guatemala from 1995 to 2009, and she was director of the Guatemalan Human Rights Commission from 2017 to 2019. Welcome to Background Briefing, Annie Bird. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Annie. And already the Honduran opposition candidate, Zia Mara Castro, has declared victory. I think, what, 51% of the, the votes are counted, and she's got a 20% lead. When do you expect the final results to come in? Well, the... It, it could be a question of days or of weeks for the vote to really be finalized. But probably within the next 24 hours, the National Elections Committee will certify her as, as, as the winner. It, it takes a while for the official vote count to be really finalized. But does that open up the possibility of, of mendacity? I mean, remember that the outgoing <laughs> narco chief, the President Juan Orlando Hernandez, his re-election, they suspended the count, and when the other guy was ahead, and suddenly he ended up ahead and got a second term. And after all, they attacked the winner of this election's uh, husband, Zelaya, on the basis that he was getting a second term, which was unconstitutional, but it was certainly not... It didn't seem to bother Hernandez. So another, I, that's a long-winded way of saying, Annie, that um, yeah. in Honduras they can make up their own rules. People are still concerned. They're very worried. I mean, there's really strong public sentiment against the National Party candidate um, who's seen very much as Juan Orlando's successor or you know, intended successor who only received, at this point, has only come in counted with 33%, 33.8% of the votes compared to Diomara Castro's 53%. And so people are very concerned that as the second half of the votes are counted, that that really strong lead could turn around based on past experiences, because that's what they saw in the past election. But at this point, to be able to do that kind of a pivot with this amount of, of difference in the in the balloting would be very, very difficult and just extremely, you know, obvious that that it was fraud. In Honduras, people talk about uh, winning against the fraud. And what they mean is essentially getting a high enough percentage of the vote that the incumbent candidates uh, that that have the access to more means for manipulating the vote count aren't able to manipulate enough of the vote to get a fraudulent win, and it seems like they've reached that threshold where it's just it's just too much of a margin. But going back to the stolen election from Mel Zelaya, who's the husband of Xiomara Castro. And by the way, she has not been living in Honduras mostly since the coup against her husband 12 years ago, right? And the military well, and uh, the business community deposed him in 2009 based well, upon... She, ha 
the they, sort they of have, red scare, right? She, she was a, um, essentially a vice presidential candidate in the last elections. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have been living back in Honduras since, I think it was 2011, when they returned about two years after the coup. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, her husband was overthrown uh, in a military coup. And but it was it was in the lead up to the election, not during the election. And um, he was the sitting president and he he was actually not going to run for president in in upcoming elections immediately after um, after he was overthrown. But what people suspected was that he was going to back a call for a, a new constitution and the claim was that if a new constitution he w- was drawn up, that he would change the article that prohibited two terms, you know, more than one term for presidency, and 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 that that was what his motive was for wanting to draw up a new constitution. Um, so it was, you know, th- that that claim about Zelaya was a little bit, um, you know, uh, speculative. Then in the past elections, the sitting president did change the constitution so that he could run it for a second term. Right. And his brother, Tony, has got got a life sentence here in the United States for importing 120 tons of cocaine. And this has led people to describe Honduras as a a kind of, what is it, a narco-democracy or a narco-dictatorship, I guess, right? Yeah, a narco dictatorship. Yeah. And he's actually he was actually named in the indictment, another indictment, um, after his brother's indictment as a co conspirator. I mean, he wasn't named. His name was not put down. He was it was assigned a number, but it was very clear from the context of the indictment that that um that, that it was him, um, and that he was being named not just as a a witness, but as a person in you know being discussed in the indictment, but as a co-conspirator, as as having participated in drug trafficking, and uh, and basically said that um, <laughs> that that he intended to to flood the United States with cocaine. Yeah, shove the shove cocaine up the noses up of the noses. of yeah. the gringos. Right? Exactly. So people in Honduras, there's a a popular song right now, which is an adaptation. It's a merengue song saying that uh, Juan Orlando is going to New York. <laughs> I think I think a lot of people in Honduras are pretty hopeful that that he'll be extradited and that he will um, face charges. Right. Well, they've taken to the streets, shooting off fireworks and singing Joe Joe. That's J O H. That's the initials of Juan Orlando Hernandez. Joe, Joe, and away you go, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, but let's t- talk a little more about the new president who ran for vice president, but she was married to the former president, Mel Zelaya, who he's a part of the elite, isn't he? He's a huge landowner, right? Even oh, though yeah. he was a friend of Hugo Chavez, and apparently both he and his wife are friends of Chavez's successor, uh, Maduro. Well, he's he's part of sort of a a class in Honduras that's kind of part of the political, the traditional political class that that have a lot of land, that are large landowners, and 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 have a lot of uh, influence in rural areas. Um, and there's sort of a traditional political divide between sort of the um, 
the business people, the banking sector, the people who have more and that really have a lot more access to, to capital. And then the sort of more uh, land-holding elite that, that that hold a lot of sway in the country and, and in the rural areas, but you know don't have aren't the the very mega wealthy that that some of the um, you know that that actually his opponent uh, Ziomara's opponent kind of represented a bit a bit more is. You know, so businessmen that had connections to some of the large banking families, and a lot of those banking families in Honduras and and, and sort of new generation of big businessmen have come in from the the Middle East, from um, Palestine, the, um, Lebanon, and um, so they're sort of seen as a bit sort of as I think you know many people in Honduras sort of see them as foreigners or or new to Honduras. And again, I'm speaking with Annie Bird, who's a human rights advocate assisting communities in Honduras and Guatemala advance justice processes for human rights violations in multiple forums, including the Inter-American Human Rights System, U.S. courts in Guatemalan and Honduran courts. And she's the co-founder of Rights Action and ran its office in Guatemala from 1995 to 2009. And she was director of the Guatemalan Human Rights Commission from 2017 to 2019. Well, what I understand, though, is happening uh, with these powerful land-owning families and and the business elite in that country is that they are either in league with or inviting in these huge palm oil companies, which are the are literally the a curse on the planet. These yeah. palm, palm oil plantations, they've ripped up amazing amounts of, of tropical rainforests and Indonesia and in Brazil and and other countries, and they're doing the same in Honduras. So it's a disaster for climate change and global warming, which is also affecting uh, Honduras. So the peasants are being driven yeah. off the land in order to rip down the rainforests and plant palm oil. Isn't that isn't that what's going on? Yeah, actually, um, that's something I've been working on for several decades um, and pretty intensely. Um, and yeah, Honduras is actually one of the countries where palm oil was first explored as a commercial crop. And the entire Caribbean coast of Honduras is just being decimated, destroyed by, by palm oil plantations, which, you know, have been, like I said, it's one of the early places where it was planted, but it's just grown voraciously and it's, it's destroying the, the ecosystems. And, you know, there's been a lot of violent uh, displacement of um, the, the, the farmers. Now, Zelaya, Manuel Zelaya is from a, another part of Honduras that's more cattle, ra- cattle ranching area. And actually, Ziomara Castro's father was a, um, is, was, was very close to, was sort of the lawyer to, and like a business partner almost, or, or uh, employee of, the largest palm oil company in Honduras, which was run by or started by a man named Miguel Facuse, who was accused of a pattern of violence to acquire the, the huge amount of land and become the largest landowner in Honduras. And and Ziomar and Castro's father actually uh, was part of that. But she's very much a, she, what, what was clear to me um, after years of working closely on the subject is that 
is that she's estranged from her father and she actually grew up as sort of the poor cousin to her husband. Um, her, she, you know, the, her father abandoned the family and she grew up on Zelaya's, uh, they, they weren't actually cousins, but they were kind of, they had some sort, she grew up on um, Zelaya's family farm. There was some, some familial relationship with, I'm not sure how it worked, but they're not actually related, but because, you know, because her mother didn't have resources and had been abandoned by, um, by her, her father. Um, so there is that familial relationship and that tie there, but it's, it's complex. And there's, I think, for people who have been working to bring to justice the, the people, the, this, this, uh, these palm oil planters that did use so much violence, you know, they're aware of that that family tie, but there's not a sense that that would, you know, that they do see Ziomara as an ally uh, in their um, struggle to recover their land and to get some kind of justice for the violence that's happened. So she's promised to implement a international justice commission, like is similar to one that existed in Guatemala that was sponsored by the United Nations that brought um, prosecutors, uh, that, that allowed prosecutors from around the world to assist in Honduran, in Guatemalan prosecutions uh, in an effort, in an international effort to prosecute uh, networks of uh, corruption and, and organized crime networks in Honduras and uh, in Guatemala, excuse me. And there's been an interest in bringing a commission like that to Honduras, but this the outgoing government has refused to allow a commission like that to function. Um, but Xiomara Castro has agreed to, promised as part of her campaign promises to come to an agreement with the United Nations to allow them, hopefully with the United Nations, if, if they'll agree to do it, or with some you know, international agency to help sponsor a similar commission in Honduras. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Annie, obviously there's a concern that this corrupt power structure in the country will simply not let her govern or will crimp her style. And it's also possible that the narco dictator, Manolando Hernandez, will seek refuge in this economic development zone he's created called Z-E-D-E, Z-E, this autonomous corporate enclave in Honduras where he could be immune from extradition because I, I believe the Drug Enforcement Administration would like to extradite him. Why the State Department continued to support him is an absolute mystery to me. I don't know whether you have any insight into that. Yeah, it's really hard to figure out, honestly, um, how he got away with remaining in power through the last elections. Um, State Department clearly did not take a strong stand. I think that probably one thing that helped him was that he was very willing to um, allow investors that were interested in Honduras to make investments, and some of which may have been facilitated by corruption, you know, so. Well, apparently when Vice President Kamala Harris was briefed on President Hernandez's record, she said, we've got to go get him now. 
but then she was cautioned by advisors uh, that you can't target a head of state. That's yeah. I think it's complex. I mean, you know, it's I don't know of a case, at least in Central America, of a sitting president having been extradited, though. There have been past presidents in, in Guatemala. The, um, Alfonso Portillo was extradited. And and actually, I think a former president of Honduras was extradited on a corruption scandal. Um, Rafael Calleja. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, Annie Bird. Yes, thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Annie Bird, who's a human rights advocate assisting communities in Honduras and Guatemala to advance justice processes for human rights violations in multiple forums, including the Inter-American Human Rights System, U.S. courts in Guatemalan and Honduran courts. She's the co-founder of Rights Action and ran its office in Guatemala from 1995 to 2009, and she was director of the Guatemalan Human Rights Commission from 2017 to 2019. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone One more light goes out in the